Today's sermon text is from the book of Philippians, chapter 4, verses 10 through 20. I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at length you have revived your concern for me. You were indeed concerned for me, but you had no opportunity. Now that I am speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Yet it was kind of you to share my trouble. And you, Philippians yourselves, know that in the beginning of the gospel, when I left Macedonia, no church entered into partnership with me in giving and receiving, except you only. Even in Thessalonica, you sent me help for my needs once and again. Now, not that I seek the gift, but I seek the fruit that increases to your credit. I have received full payment and more. I am well supplied, having received from Epaphroditus the gifts you sent, a fragrant offering, a sacrifice acceptable and pleasing to God. And my God will supply every need of yours according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. To our God and Father be glory forever and ever. Amen. This is God's word. Amen. Amen. Um, thank you, Tracy. The, uh, it was Tracy, right? Yes. Um, <laughs> um, I love that verse, in my God will supply every need of yours according to his riches in glory in Christ Jesus. And when Lindsay was praying at the end of uh, the music today, um, I don't know if you felt this. Lindsay, are you still here? Is she in nursery or something? Um, anyway, uh, Lindsay, um, I felt like she had a word of knowledge that there might be a person or people who maybe find the prospect of suicide to be a way out, to be healing. Um, when you're not in pain, it's easy to say, oh, that's preposterous. But when you are racked by pain, long pain, relentless pain, sometimes that's the only thing that seems to bring relief and healing. If that is you today, I beg you, please reach out to us. Let us encourage you. Let us encourage you. Um, our emails are in the bulletin. Um, you can send it from a dummy email account if you want and not even tell us your name just to see if we can even, if we have anything to say to you that's helpful, but do, do something, reach out to us. I am certain that Lindsay who prayed that prayer, if you see her and you pulled her aside and said, hey, you read my mail today. She is one of the softest, kindest, godliest people that I know. And I'm certain she would minister to you and encourage you. And there's, in fact, there's a lot of people like that in this room. So I just want to make sure that I, I acknowledge that. I really think that she had a word of wisdom this morning, a word of knowledge. And if you are here and you need help, if you're facing pain, trials that are leaving you with no answers, and the only answer you see is maybe taking your own life, please, I beg you, please talk to us. We want to help you. There is no shame in that. No shame. No shame. Um, 
God is gracious. He is so good. I love it that he will supply every need of yours according to his riches and glory. And I think that that word of knowledge could have been God supplying a need that maybe some of you have in this room. You needed to know that God sees you. He's not forgotten about you and he loves you. He loves you and he wants to love you uh, not just through this wisp of the spirit in a prayer time, but he wants to love you through flesh and bone people who can surround you and minister to you and nurture you and encourage you. So again, I beg you, please, please reach out to us if that's you. Um, coincidentally, or maybe not, um, the, the, the core text that we are dealing with today is one of those verses that we see everywhere his maybe the most often quoted verse besides John 3:16. We see the verse, the core verse of this text. We see it written on uh, million millionaire basketball players' shoes. We see it written below uh, quarterbacks' eyes. We see it written on posters and billboards. We see it in posters on the walls of Sunday school classrooms. And that verse is Philippians 4:13. I can do all things through Christ Jesus who strengthens me. I can do all things. And my question for us as we get into this today is, I don't know how to ask this without sounding almost condescending, but I don't mean to come across that way. But I wonder, for those of us who glory in that verse, those words, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Is that a slogan Or is that conviction? Is that sentiment? Or is it real? When you look back over the most trying times in your life, did you escape? And because you happen to be a Christian and go to church, the best explanation you can muster is, well, maybe God got me through that. And I'm not trying to take any props from God. Or, as you look back over your most trying and maybe defeating times in your life, do you know that when you were weakest and when you were most in pain, that it was the divine strength of Jesus himself who was that guiding light for you that helped you navigate those choppy waters? Is it sentiment or is it real? The reason I ask that is because my goal in preaching this sermon this morning is to at least open our eyes to the possibility that no matter what your life looks like right now, if your life is being hammered and thrown about by a stormy gale or if you are sailing on smooth waters. I want to know that you, follower of Jesus, you, follower of Jesus, have the understanding, the hunger, and the growing skill of learning how to walk in Jesus' strength. And yes, I said skill. I know that doesn't sound Holy Spirity. But it's a skill that is learned. It's not something that just happens because we go to church. 
It's a skill that is learned. Now, to be, to be uh, uh, totally clear, it can only happen to people who are truly followers of Jesus. It can't happen. It's not just something you can do by reading a book. It's, it's an act of worship that's intentional, that's active, by which the Holy Spirit enters into our lives in new and refreshing ways and shows us how to lean entirely on the strength of Jesus. I want you to be able to have some understanding of how to move forward in that truth today. I want you to know how to do that. I badly want you to know how to do that. So we're going to go to verse uh, 10. In verse 10, Paul's talking about how he's thankful for the Philippians, how they have some sort of a revival of love and care for him. I want to remind us all as we are bringing this Philippian series to a close, I want to remind us all of where Paul is when he's writing this letter. He is in a prison cell. He is in jail. He's been jailed for his witness of the gospel. At some point in the future, we don't know when, he will be killed. But right now, Paul is in jail. And jails back in those days did not have that layer of administration in which the inmates were cared for with food and clothing and medicine. Those jail cells were filthy, full of rats, disease, dysentery, leprosy, everything. And the only way that a person in jail in those days had a chance to survive that dehumanizing circumstance was that person's friends and family would come to him daily and make sure that he or she received food and care. They didn't have, I don't think they had email back then. I'm, I'm not, I didn't check that before I preached today, but I, I don't, I'm almost certain they did not have email, telephones. Uh, the only way they could communicate was through vast distances, through delivering a letter to a friend to go deliver to someone else. And so it's been a long time since Paul's heard from the Philippians. This is his most supportive church. They have his back. As a matter of fact, this was his first church plant in Europe, his first one. Paul looks at the Philippian church as the beginning of, a, of the gospel, he says in this letter, in Europe, the beginning of the gospel. This is his baby. This is something that he's proud of and that he loves but the distance between him and that church has left him wondering, is it because of the severe persecution that the Philippian church is facing? Is that why I've not heard from him? Are they upset with me? Do they resent me for preaching to them that they can experience un, uh, just unmeasured riches in Jesus and yet they find themselves on the end of persecution? Or do they love me? So this man named Epaphroditus comes from Philippi, delivers news to Paul that the church is a-okay. They're doing well. They're enduring well. And he brings him money in order to care for him. And Paul is thankful. He's breathing a sigh of relief, you could say, in verse 10. And then we get to verse 11. We get to verse 11. It says this. Not that I'm speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. Now, Paul is not doing a Jesus juke here. 
He's not trying to convince these people that he doesn't really need them. He's not full of pride and can't say, hey, the gift that you gave me was relief to me. As a matter of fact, he says that later. He's not trying to show them that he's super spiritual and way more mature than they are. He is saying something that is true that has happened to him in his life and he wants this to happen to them too. He is saying to them, I am not speaking of being in need, even though he's in need. For I have learned, would you say that word learned? I have learned. Think of skill. I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I've learned that. This is the Apostle Paul looking back over his Christian life and he says this, one of the big things that I've learned, if not the biggest, is how to be content, come hell or high water. This is something that I've learned. Now, I want to remind you that one of the themes of Philippians is the word joy. I know some of us, when we hear stuff like learning to be content, we're like, oh, this is going to be a dud today. I wish I had to pick me up at church this morning. Um, but Paul in this text, at least a dozen, maybe as many as 16 times in the original Greek, uses a word for joy. He doesn't see this as bad news, learning to be content. He sees this as the doorway to riches that, in my opinion, most Christians have never touched. Joy. He says, I have learned in whatever situation I'm in to be content. And then he says this in verse 12. I know how. I have a skill that I've acquired. I know how to be brought low. I love the way he says that. Maybe I'm embellishing too much here on Paul's words. But I notice that if I were talking, I would say, when I'm brought low, I know how to do something in response. Paul owns his pain. I know how to be brought low. I know how to enter into misery and be with Jesus in that. I know how to fight for joy and get it. Isn't that what we all want? When it's all said and done, when we are hurting the most, isn't it isn't what we really want, our most animal desire to get joy when it hurts the most? How do I get that? How do I get that? Paul says, I've learned this. Friends, I don't know about you, but I want to learn that too. I want to know how to do that. I don't think I'm that good at it. I want to know how to reach out and fight for and grab joy when misery is my companion. I want to know that. But here's the kicker. You don't learn that unless misery is your companion. You don't learn how to fight for joy when you're always happy. There's nothing to fight for. You don't learn this that way. I'm not wishing misfortune on anyone here, and neither is Paul. But let's be honest. Let's just admit 
that despite what our surrounding society says, that desires to shape us and change us in such a way that our expectation every single day is to wake up happy clappy and go to bed happy clappy, that we live in a world that is unpredictable, that has highs and lows, that has triumphs and has disappointments. And if you continue to live beyond today, you are going to experience more triumphs and more disappointments. And for some mysterious reason that I and no other person can explain, for some people, those triumphs are a lot more than disappointments. And for some people, those disappointments are a lot more than triumphs. I don't know why that is. David says the same thing in all of his Psalms. Why? Why are the unrighteous rewarded? Why? Why? So let's admit that. All of us face disappointments. Some of us misery. And all of us need to learn how to be brought low. We need to learn that. How can I learn to be brought low? And then Paul says this, and I know how to abound. I know how to do this. In any and every circumstance, I have, um, in every, in any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I know what it's like. I know how to face that. I know how to wield abundance. I'm not wielded by abundance or pain. I wield it. I know how to do that. I know how to live in this. And it's not like Paul is writing from some resort when he's on sabbatical from preaching. He's writing from a prison cell. I know how to do this. There's credibility here. I know this. And my goodness, my friends, I want you to know how to do this too. I want to know how to do this. And it's in that context that he says, I can do all things through him who strengthens me. So here's the question. What is it that Paul can do through him who strengthens him? First, because of Jesus' strength, he knows how to be content. This is, he's not saying here, I know how to throw a touchdown pass because of Jesus who strengthens me. I know how to make threes. I'm not saying that athletes shouldn't say, praise God, I can do all things that strengthens me. I'm, I'm not saying it's wrong to do that. I'm glad, I'm, I'm glad people can f- look at their athletic abilities and say, man, God, you gave me this. Thank you. I'm, I, I appreciate that. But for most people, it's simply a slogan. Do we really understand what the scriptures are teaching us here? That what we learn, what we do in Christ's strength is we develop the skill of walking contentedly and we know how to be brought low and we know how to abound we know how to do that this is the skill that paul is talking about here you see prosperity theology and i don't mean just the rubbish that you see on christian television but i'm talking about prosperity theology that has uh, that has just leaked into the cracks and crevices of almost all american churchianity Prosperity theology says that following Jesus means that I won't be brought low anymore. I don't have to ever be brought low. The fruit of that belief is this. People are totally unequipped for the hard knocks and the demonic warfare of life. 
totally unequipped. The gospel does not say, I don't have to be brought low anymore. It says, I know how to be brought low and I know how to abound in Jesus. And the fruit of that speaks for itself. It speaks for itself. What's the extent of Paul's learning? Hunger, plenty. Abundance, need. My friends, it's unmistakable that the primary implication of what Paul is teaching us here as he's inspired by the Spirit is this. The Christian faith is more than believing the right thing. The Christian faith is, being, is more than forgiveness, being made right with God, although that is big. The Christian faith is learning Jesus' skills and walking in them by depending on Him. Because we can't do this without Jesus' strength being inside of us. We can't do that. And so that brings up another implication. If I really don't see Jesus as the vine and myself as a branch, if I really don't have a need for Him to abide in Him, if the totality of my Christian life is my daily Bible reading plan and checking in at church a couple times a month. I seriously doubt, I seriously doubt we are ever going to be able to relate to what it's like that Jesus' strength leads me and guides me and roots me in truth. I seriously doubt that. There's a few implications that I wanted to just go ahead and put out in front of you so we can get our eyes on them and maybe get it into our long-term memory. The first implication of this, and there may be more than just four, but there's a, a few I've come up with. One, life can be unpredictable and hard even for believers, devout believers. That's what this text is telling us. It's implying this very strongly. Two, the Christian faith is also a way of life that must be learned. I say also because it's not just believing the right thing. It's not just repenting and praying and asking Jesus into your heart. It's more than that. The Christian faith is learning to live like Jesus, acquiring his skills, his skills. Third thing, contentment is the skill to be acquired by all believers in Jesus. Contentment. Contentment. And Jesus gives us the strength to live contented lives. Contented lives. I want to talk about contentment for a second. We probably have a variety of definitions floating around in our heads. I want to be very clear that contentment, as Paul uses it, reaches back to Philippians chapter 3, in which Paul shares with us his greatest ambition. Philippians 3, 10 and 11, Paul says this, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and fellowship with his sufferings, being conformed to his death, if by any means I might attain to the resurrection from the dead. 
When Paul is talking about contentment, he is not saying be okay with only having four pairs of jeans rather than eight. That's not what we're talking about by contentment here. We're not talking about being okay with a Buick instead of a Lexus. That's not what he's saying here, although it might include those implications. Not that Lexus is wrong or sinful. But many of us have bought into the lie that is shaping our culture that having something new and something additional will give us the happiness that is so elusive in our lives. And it just doesn't. It just doesn't. I would challenge you to question your own heart. Look under the hood. What do you see? What are your desires, your longings? What do you yearn for? Because the creed of our American culture is this. I've got to have that. I've got to have that. The creed of our faith is, I've got to have him. And it's hard to want Jesus when our lives throughout the year are something new, something beautiful, something wonderful that we purchase and buy looking for that elusive happiness. And it doesn't endure. That happiness does not endure. That is not joy. That is not joy. That's a brief emotional lift. It is a brief emotional lift. There's a guy named uh, Rankin Wilburn who wrote a book called Union with Christ. And as a matter of fact, his book Union with Christ will be the primary source of our Wednesday night teaching beginning August 17th, Union with Christ. We're going to talk about everything that we're talking about in this series in Philippians, being, seeing yourself in union with Jesus, being one with Jesus, living the way Jesus lives, acquiring Jesus' skills. We're going to be talking through how to realize that and live that in our lives on Wednesday nights beginning August 17th. And that semester is going to run from August 17th to the week before November. I forgot the date of that, maybe the 16th of November. Um, but it's only about 14 weeks. We're not gonna, after that, we're not going to have any more Wednesday nights through December. Then we'll pick back up in January. But we're going to spend 14 weeks talking about union with Christ. And there's some things that uh, Rankin Wilburn said in his book that I think are really interesting that speak directly to us. And, and there's a, just a few comments here that I want to read you. He says this, depression is the most diagnosed mental disorder in the world. Now, we know that empirically. We don't have hard data to back that up. But it's very likely, at least in our world, in our corner of the world, depression is the most diagnosed mental disorder in our world. And largely due, it's largely due to our society's expectation on each of us to achieve success and maintain success. That leads to tons of anxiety in our lives. And that anxiety constantly causes us to question ourselves, am I good enough? And sometimes we answer that question, no, I'm not. And it leaves us depressed Lonely, angry, ashamed, depressed. Having more choices in our society has been, has been shown not to lead to more happiness, but to greater discontentment. Having more choices actually leads to greater discontentment because there's so much out there, there's so much 
we don't have. There's so much we don't have. More choices do not equal more happiness. As a matter of fact, increased choices have led to increased expectations of how good a choice should be, leading to increased dissatisfaction. And so this affects everything from the people that we marry to the cars that we buy to the houses that we own to the clothes that we buy, everything, the jobs that we have, everything. We're constantly being fed. There can be something greater and better. This is one of the, this is one of the biggest narratives that we fight in our church. One of the biggest narratives, pastorally and institutionally. Why aren't we bigger? Why aren't we better? Why aren't we growing? Why aren't we this? Why aren't we that? And then people in their own lives. Why am I not here yet? Why am I still dealing with this sin? Why? 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 It should be something better. This is what I mean when I talk about how we live in a triumphalistic society that prizes above all things winning, victory. We don't like lamenting. We don't like sorrow and sadness. We don't like being shaped by pain. We don't like it. And so in all of these choices that we have, we're constantly, it's constantly pitting the imagined possibilities of what you don't have against the real limitations of what you do have. It eventually leads to dissatisfaction with whatever or whomever you choose. That's why she's not pretty enough anymore. He's not handsome enough anymore or funny enough anymore. My job isn't the blessing that it was six months ago. There's always something better. And so we are being shaped by a culture that wants us to be in a state of dissatisfaction. Think about the, I mean, y'all know I love Apple products, but man, I'm kind of getting tired of every year being told that my phone is not good enough and I need something else. 40,000 megapixel cameras will be the norm in 10 years and that won't be good enough one day because I won't be able to catch a hummingbird wings in mid-flight, you know, with my phone. Um, It's not enough. It's not enough. Our whole world, our whole economy is built on the assumption that we need to give people beautiful things and then convince them a year later that it's not beautiful enough so they'll get something more beautiful. That's our entire economy right now. That's everything. And so Paul talks about this being a secret. He talks about how he's learned this secret and he wields it in his life. And the implication here is he wants the Philippians to grow in this secret too. And that points back, as I just said, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share in his sufferings, being conformed, uh, being like him in his death, that by any means possible, I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. Now, a few weeks ago, I did a talk on this thing called the J-curve. Does anybody remember the J-curve? I am convinced that We need to hear things more and more and more and more rather than only once and then move on to something awesome that I've never heard before. And so I want to talk about that for a second because I believe with all of my heart that Paul's secret 
to knowing how to be brought low and knowing how to abound and loving a life of contentment is found in the J-curve. If you guys wouldn't mind putting that first slide up. I want you to remember this. We talked about the J-curve. Can you tell why it's called the J-curve? Give you 10 more seconds to think about that. Okay. Jason, see, it looks like a J. See that? Talk later. So, um, so we got, so this, Jason really did understand it, didn't he? Yeah. So, um, so Paul's talking about this process that we all experience in our lives, life, death, and resurrection. We all experience this. Many of us, we don't like the death part. So if you don't mind going to the next slide, guys, back there, we want to skip the death part and go straight to resurrection. But here's the problem with that. The resurrection that we want in our minds often does not match the resurrection that Jesus has in mind for us. There are things, going back to the other slide, there are things in my life that have brought me deep joy and contentment only because I went through the bottom of that J-curve through a death. And my values were shaped by that death which has led to a resurrection which has been transformational in my life. I, when I preached this a few, uh, a few weeks back, I gave the, my own example of when I took over this church. When I took over this church eight years ago, I thought within just a few years we'd be busting at the seams, double services, triple services, all that kind of stuff. That, that on paper is okay. But my pride did not need that. And honestly, looking back, had that happened to us, I don't think my ego could have handled that. I really don't. I really don't. My identity was too wrapped up in the size of a church, and that's not what the gospel says is a successful church. The gospel says that a successful church, big or small, I'm not against big churches, I'd love to have one, but the gospel says that a successful church is one where we love one another. And so the death that I've experienced in my life has brought me to a place where I'm always sort of living in that tension of a sorrow of wondering, gosh, am I enough? Don't feel too sorry for me. I appreciate if you do. We all face this. The sorrow of if I'm enough, but also that knowledge of, oh my goodness, I love you people. I love you so much. And when I really think about it and pray about it, the resurrection of leading a group of people that I love and that I feel like I know and I feel like they know me. I got friends that pastor big churches from the nation and the drama that they deal with is crazy. It's like they should rename their church the Housewives of Atlanta Christian Church. It's crazy <laughs> some of the stuff that they go through. They tell me stories and I'm like, what? That is not that we're impervious to sin. We Man, my goodness. But that's, the, that's one of the ways that the J-curve has been huge for me in my life. It's led me to a place of contentment. Does that mean that that sorrow that's in the back of my mind vanishes and goes away? No. I have to fight for joy at times. And you have to fight for joy too. And I want you to know how to be brought low and how to abound. It's a skill that we learn in Jesus. There is a version of American Christianity that tells you that you shouldn't have to deal with sorrow. The gospel says, learn the skill of being brought low and learn the skill of being raised up. 
learn how to live a life of contentment. Now, for some of us, learning to live content, learning to live contentedly, we have to learn that in the context of abundance. Because you take our church, like my J-curve, for instance, and you put us in Iran, the Philippines, United Kingdom. This is a megachurch. I'm not trying to justify and make myself feel better about myself. It's just true. It really is. There are hundreds of thousands of churches around the world that have a handful of people meeting in a, you know, in a broom closet or something. In secret, some, in some cases. So we have abundance here. We have abundance here. And many of you have abundance in your lives. And so the question is not, I'm hurting really bad, some of us. How do I know how to be content in Jesus? But it's, I have more than I need, and I don't even need Jesus. How am I to be content in that situation? Content with Christ. That's the question many of us face in this room. That I don't hunger and thirst for righteousness. I had a dear brother in our church sit down with me just a few weeks ago, and he said these words to me, and I was so proud of his vulnerability. He said, Chris, I don't read my Bible, I don't pray, and I don't care. And that bothers me. I'm thankful for that. Real ministry, Holy Spirit ministry can only take place in the context of that kind of transparency. Real ministry. And so what we want to do is teach you how to live in the J-curve in your life. Because we have no control over pain or over triumph in our lives. No control over it. But we need to know how to be brought low and how to be lifted up. Now, this is not easy. It necessarily means that whatever struggles and pain that we have in our lives, we're going to have to look at it closely. Because like for me, for a long time in my life, the sorrow and disappointment that I felt, I just suppressed. I tried to preach better, lead better, do, do church better, and that didn't fix my broken heart. I had to look under the hood and study my brokenness because my brokenness was an extension of my idolatry. And I had to find Jesus in my brokenness. And many of us in here, we've been trained to suppress our brokenness, to ignore our shame, hoping that one day if I ignore it enough, it'll just vanish. And it doesn't. It grows like a root system under the surface. And it changes us. It makes us bitter and cynical and angry. It does this to us. So I want to encourage you. You must face the parts of your life that bring you the most shame. The places in your life that fuel destructive behavior and emotional disarray. You've got to face that, man. I'm not giving you bad news this morning, friends. I'm telling you how to get joy. I'm telling you how to learn how to be brought low and how to be lifted up. I want you to learn this. I badly want you to learn this. And I want to remind everybody in here that you are in grace if you follow Jesus. And that means that as you look at the things in your life that bring the most shame, God looks at you with soft and gentle love. He cares for you. 
He adores you. He is so excited about your life and he wants to be with you in the middle of your shame. This is what grace tells us. Grace tells us we have Christ's strength to change and Christ's courage to face it because we're accepted, we're loved. When Jesus was water baptized and he came out of that water and God said, well done, or this is my, I'm sorry, this is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. He was pronouncing that over us who put our faith in Jesus. We are one with Jesus. So I want to talk just for a minute in closing about why Wednesday night for a moment. I want to say this first. You are not expected to be at our Wednesday, at our midweek service. I had a few people tell me like, man, I'm in a community group. I'm doing Sunday mornings. I really don't want to go to there. And I love the new, this transparency that our church is beginning to pick up. I really, I've had people tell me, Chris, I really don't want to go to your church service. And I'm like, okay. Um, thank you for telling me that. Um, um, you're not expected to be here. You're not expected to be there. If you're not there, you don't ever have to apologize to me or any other staff member for not going to our midweek service. It's cool. It's cool. This is for people who want to. That's all. It's for people who want to. Our midweek service is not the first step in marginalizing our community groups. We are going to have community groups until Jesus says, maybe, maybe you shouldn't do that. I have learned to quit saying, we're going to have community groups forever. I'm, I'm going to stop saying stuff like that because God's proving wrong at times. But as of now, we have no interest in getting rid of our community groups. I'm part of a community group. Many people here are in community groups. We need community. We need to learn how to live together and do life together. We need that. But if you are part of a community group, and you decide to eject from that a community group, from that community group, I'm going to call it CG, it's easier to say, CG, and go to midweek, that is cool. That's cool. If you decide to stay in your CG and don't go to midweek, that's cool. If you want to go to both, that's cool. If you don't go to either, Watch out. <laughs> We're trying to create opportunities for people to grow in their love and affection for Jesus. We have a generation of Christians who don't know how to be Christians. And the truth of the gospel is this. One of the fundamental implications of the gospel is that we are a body Peter says it this way, we're like a temple. Each of us are stones connected together. And that's where the Spirit manifests Himself. How does that happen if the only time we're together is for an hour and a half on a Sunday morning? We need one another. We need to be together. We really need to be together. So I want to say a few things about, um, about our midweek service. Um, we were going to be meeting at Missio Day. My friend Sean Payne, who's the pastor there, who's one of the best guys I know in this city and a dear friend, he's been graciously allowing our youth to meet and gather at Missio Day for, man, a couple of years now today, two or three years. And uh, I'm so thankful for him. Um, but it's, if we're going to do something like this, we're going to need a bigger facility than what Missio Day has. Um, we were ready to go to Missio Day, but then just over the last week, 
Uh, a friend of mine, his name is Patrick Conrad. He leads Life Fellowship in North Mississippi. Uh, uh, several multi, it's a multi-site, a multi-campus church, big church. And they own the building Believing Church meets in on Poplar and Perkins. I don't know if you can see that in your mind's eye, but it used to be Eudora Baptist Church. And uh, they, they gave, their, gave their property to Life Fellowship and Life Fellowship planted a believing church in that facility. And uh, so reached out to Patrick this week. We talked, we toured the building. Man, me and all the staff were like, wow, this is perfect. It has the, enough space. It's beautiful. It's, I cannot begin to describe how wonderful the, the facility is. And he is allowing us to rent that each week indefinitely. And if I told you the price, I, I would blush. It's, I can't believe how much he's blessing us. It's just, it's crazy. I love it that God is supplying all of our needs according to his riches and glory. He's supplying our needs. And I'm so thankful for that. And so we're going to meet there on Wednesday nights beginning August 17th. Now, if you're in youth group, you're still at Missio Day until then. Until August, what, August 10th, I guess? Yeah, two more weeks at Missio Day. But August 17th, we begin our midweek service at Believing Church. It's on Perkins and Poplar. It's right between that Walgreens and White Station High School, right between those two buildings. And um, it's going to go from 7 to 8.15. It's not going to go a long time. We know you've got to get home and get your kids to bed. We're going to have full nursery. We're going to have elementary education for our kids. We're going to have youth group there. One of the reasons why we need to do this is because some of y'all have crazy kids. And we need to have a venue where we can do a, church, a worship service or a teaching venue and you can bring your kids to nursery and then go, woo, and take about an hour and 15 minutes and come sit down and drink coffee and fellowship in God's word. And fellowship in God's word. Um, if you're mad at me, I was not talking about your kids. That's, that, that's not who I was talking about. Um, we're going to get into some teaching. It's going to be good, man. We're going to get into some teaching. I'm, going to ra- I'm raising up a teaching team to do it with me. I'm not, I'm, I don't want this to be the Chris Bennett show, but it's going to be quality, and it's going to be good. And even if the teaching does get lame sometimes, we're still talking about God's Word. How can it get lame, you know? So um, the goal is not to be lame, but, it, you know, you never know. So um, <laughs> be content. Yeah, be content. Um, this is a better fit for some people. If your community group, your CG gets a little smaller or a lot smaller, that's okay. The whole purpose behind our community groups is to gather and do life together. And if you're with two other couples or three other singles or 15 couples and singles, it's all good. It's all good. We do not measure the success of your group based on how many people are there. We don't. We don't. Um, We want you to be in a place where you can grow in Jesus with some wonderful people. 8.15, we'll dismiss. If you're a parent and you're waiting for your kids to get out of youth group, we're going to hang out and shoot the breeze for a while. None of us are going to leave you there by yourself. You're not going to have to go wait in your car unless you just really want to. And we're going to hang out and be together. We're going to have good coffee, maybe lemonade or iced tea or something like that. But this is what we're doing. So um, that's all I want to say about that. Again, if you don't come, it's cool. Don't apologize to me for not coming. I don't want to hear your apology for not being at midweek. But if you want to come, 7 o'clock, August 17th, it's going to be really, really rich together. We want to teach you in that series 
your union with Jesus and what it looks like to walk in him. So I want to close three last points. What is it that I want you to take away today? That Jesus gives us the strength for a life of rich contentment. But we've got to immerse ourselves in Jesus. My wife took Spanish all through high school. She understood the grammar. She understood sentence structure, but she couldn't speak it. But when she moved down to Mexico and was a missionary there for about a year or a year and a half, when she was 19 years old or something, 18 years old, she was immersed in Spanish. And one day she was sitting at a bus terminal in Southern California, and it dawned on her, I'm not having to think and interpret in my mind what I'm hearing anymore. I hear this and I understand it. She became fluent through immersion. My friends, the only way we're going to be fluent in our union with Jesus is through immersion in Jesus. And I'm begging you, my friends, not because this is going to help my ego. Quit skipping Sundays. Quit staying home. Quit doing that. You're hurting yourself. Take advantage of every opportunity that you have to grow in Jesus and to become, uh, develop a life in Jesus. Be with us. I want to be with you. I really do. Second thing, this strength is found in facing our pain with Jesus. We want you to be in a community where people face your pain with you. So you can grow in the strength of Jesus. And then finally, this strength is only found in meeting with Jesus together. We've got to be with Jesus. We've got to be together. Jesus, we love you. Thank you for your word. I thank you for the opportunity to exhort your people today. And I pray, oh God, that you would cause these words, only the words that are inspired by your spirit, to take root in your people's hearts. And I pray, Jesus, that you would cause Renewal Church to be a church filled with people who live, breathe, and think Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. It's in your name we pray. Amen.